So we've been in this Easter tide sermon series in the book of Acts. It's been entitled Living in the Power of the Resurrection, and one might add by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In the last three weeks, we've been in Acts chapter 3 and 4, and this week we now enter into Acts chapter 8. Last week in Acts chapter 4, Luke showed us how the early Christians navigated life in a culture that was hostile to, or at least incredulous toward, the name of Jesus. How did early Christians navigate life in a culture that was hostile to their faith? That's what we looked at last week. But as we come into Acts chapter 8, Luke presents us with something slightly adjusted, slightly different. How do God's redemptive purposes for the world continue to be fulfilled, even when his chosen means of blessing the world, i.e. his people, the church, are persecuted or marginalized? So how do God's redemptive purposes for the world continue to be fulfilled when his means of blessing the world, i.e. the church, are persecuted or marginalized in the world? Now, this point is made clear by Luke at the beginning of chapter 8. Having just witnessed the stoning of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, the first of many to come, Luke tells us that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Hold on to those regions for a moment. Then a couple verses later, verses 4 and 5, Luke adds, Now those who were scattered went abroad preaching the word. And Philip, in particular, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. And so what Luke wants us to see is he wants us to read the whole of chapter 8 is something quite profound. As the church is being persecuted and scattered and marginalized in their city, the wisdom and power of God is at work fulfilling his purposes for the world. And I think this is meant to be an encouragement to the church in every age and in every generation. God is saying, something that is meant to encourage us. And he's saying to us, I want you to have a heart of evangelism in every season, in every circumstance, no matter how difficult. Yes, a heart for justice and mercy and advocacy, but also a heart for evangelism, the simple joy of sharing, of sharing Jesus with people. And I think Jesus, God's wanting to encourage us because he wants us to see that the persecution or the marginalization of church in the society as hard as that may be, may present the church with fresh opportunities for ministry. And I wonder if for those of us that are living in like an increasingly post-Christian society in the West, if we have to recognize that the two are often going to go together in the years ahead. Uh, Forms of marginalization and forms of revitalization. Forms of pressure from the culture and fresh forms of opportunity for ministry. And where many Christians are quick to lament the the pressures from the culture, I wonder if what our passage is asking us is, are you, the people of God, ready to embrace the fresh opportunities that are going to come in the midst of the pressure? Because that may be one of the biggest spiritual and missiological questions of our day. I remember when I first moved to Canada, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, um, I I wasn't ready for how post-Christian it was. Canada, at least where I was, I think is often a couple decades ahead of of the states in this regard. And I remember it struck me one day, I was maybe two or three months in, and I was waiting for the bus uh, at the bus stop. 
And I struck up a conversation with a young man and he said, uh, you know, what are you studying? And I said, oh, I'm studying Christian theology. And he said that, he said, what's that? And I said, oh, oh, you know, um, I'm studying that, that person, Jesus, you know, Jesus. And he just looked at me and said, who's Jesus? And, and he was dead serious. He had never heard of the name of Jesus before. And he had no preconceived notion or categories for who this man was. And I wish I could tell you that I had some fabulous answer, <laughs> um, but I didn't. I, I think I was just dumb. I was just dumbfounded. I was uh, I, I fumbled over my words um, because I hadn't come across that before in my life growing up in the States. So one of the questions I'm asking is like, how do we make sure that we're ready? We're not caught off guard like I was <laughs> ready to embrace the opportunities God gives us in our day to day lives to tell people about the good news of Jesus. I think it's a key moment in our culture. People are searching. They're wondering, is there any meaning in the midst of this mayhem? And so I wonder, what does God's word in Acts chapter 8 have to teach us about first world re-evangelization? And I think there are four things I want to highlight for us briefly in our time together. The first is I think God wants to say, don't be surprised or don't be discouraged by persecution or marginalization of the church and society. I think we're being told here, like, this is nothing new. It's going to come in one form or another at one time or another. I mean, just talk to your brothers and sisters in China. Just talk to your brothers and sisters in India. Whether it's external from enemies or internal from people that we once thought were friends, like, the church has always experienced persecution in one way or another. So don't be surprised as if something unusual or unprecedented is happening. And in particular, don't, don't be discouraged in thinking that God's purposes are somehow being thwarted in the midst of that. And so I think Acts 8 is meant to be a word of encouragement to a persecuted and a scattered church. That God's purposes are still going to be fulfilled through them for the sake of the world. In order to see this, I think we have to kind of back up and see Acts chapter 8 in its larger biblical context of the biblical story of what God's on about. I mean, if you go all the way back to, to Genesis chapter 12, God's pro original promises to Abraham, uh, to the founding of the people of God. Uh, God says, uh, Abraham, I'm going to bring you to a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to protect you. Why? So that every family of the earth will be blessed through you. In other words, God's saying to Abraham, I'm creating a people for myself. I'm forming a people for myself, not simply so that they can be saved from the world, but so that they can be a blessing to the world because I want to save the whole world. And this is, a, this is a theme throughout the whole scriptures. God's commitment to Israel is his commitment to, to blessing the entire world. And so it's no mistake that when we come to the Gospel of Matthew, the first verses of the New Testament, it begins with a genealogy that starts with Abraham. Harkening back to those great promises and saying basically in Jesus, the promises of Abraham are starting to become fulfilled. And so the Gospel of Matthew ends with the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so it's no mistake that when we come to the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And so I think the word of encouragement that God wants to speak to us is that precisely when you are experiencing persecution or marginalization in the society, maybe that is precisely the moment when I am choosing to move my purposes forward in blessing the world in unforeseen ways. Acts chapter 8 is one of those major turning points when the gospel is finally leaving Jerusalem and it's going to Samaria and it's going to North Africa and the world is starting to receive the blessings that God promised to Abraham thousands of years before. So I think God is saying, maybe there's a redemptive opportunity in the midst of what you're experiencing. I think the second lesson we learned for re-evangelization in our day and age is the importance of developing a trusting sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. A trusting sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And especially the ways in which the Holy Spirit may want us to cross or to bridge ethnic and cultural divides and boundaries. I mean, the fact that Philip goes into Samaria would have been astonishing for a Jew to do in that day and age. And then even further, that, that he is the one that brings the gospel to an Ethiopian man, a man from North Africa. And it's this aspect of the text that I think helps remind us that, that living in the midst of an increasingly diverse nation is actually a profound opportunity for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mean, throughout our passage, it's, it's the person and work and agency of the Spirit in the beginning and the middle of the end that is orchestrating this whole movement of the gospel. In, in verse 26, um, it's an angel of the Lord, actually, that says to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip doesn't know what's going to happen there. He, he just listens to the leading of the Lord. And then in verse 29, the spirit says to Philip, go over and join the chariot of that eunuch. Philip doesn't know what's going to happen or how that conversation is going to unfold. He just listens to the spirit one step at a time. And then in verse 39, at the end, um, when, you know, the eunuch has been baptized, the spirit of the Lord, you know, leads and carries Philip away to move on and preach somewhere else. And, and Philip trusts the eunuch to the Lord and, and he moves on. And so all throughout this passage, one of the things that we see is that God is wanting to develop in Philip, the evangelist, a trusting sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. He guides him and speaks to him one step at a time so that Philip can learn obedience one step at a time. And so I think it raises a really personal and spiritual question for us. Like, are we aware of the ways the Spirit is leading us? Where is the, the Spirit inviting us to go? To whom is he inviting us to, to go? The third lesson that I think we get is the importance of not only developing a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, but the importance of developing a biblically informed understanding of who Jesus is. I mean, it's one, one of the things I ask myself is, could I have answered the eunuch's question about how to understand Isaiah 53? <laughs> could, could I have answered that question well? And one of the things that we see here is that the Old Testament is held forth as, a, as the cradle of Jesus Christ. Every portion of the Old Testament, uh, from the prophets to the Psalms to the law, holds forth the beauty and the mercy and the truth of Jesus. 
And so the practical and personal question that I think this kind of raises for us, as it did for Philip from the eunuch, is am I growing in my capacity and in my desire to show others who Jesus is from Holy Scripture? And I think sometimes we can tend to make evangelism quite complicated. Like it's good to do in-depth missiological and sociological and contextual study, but sometimes um, we just need to be reminded of the simplicity of evangelism. It's simply holding forth Jesus from Holy Scripture and trusting by the power of the Holy Spirit that the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done is going to be enough to draw people into a saving experience of his grace. So first, I think God wants to encourage us. Don't be surprised when fiery trials and temptations come your way. There will be fresh ministry opportunities. Second, develop a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Third, develop a biblically informed understanding of Jesus and just a simple joy in, in getting to hold him forth to people and trust that his good news is going to draw people to himself. And fourth and finally, seize, seize your God-given opportunities, but also rest in your God-given limitations. Seize your God-given opportunities. Like Philip, Philip's opportunity here is just a small piece of a much larger picture. And, and we know that because clearly God's been working in this eunuch's life before Philip ever shows on the scene. Like he's traveled to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. He has, uh, he has the scriptures, he has the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah, and he's reading and he's seeking and he's trying to discern the truth. And so what we learn here is that this man's conversion process involves multiple people in multiple phases uh, to what is happening. I remember when I was in Canada serving university students, I, I, I read a study that in Canada, for those that become Christians, that are become Christians in university, the average process takes 18 to 24 months. And it includes at least an average of eight people being involved in that person's life. So conversion is this long-term process and evangelism is this communal ministry. And I found this to be true in my life when, when, I, was, um, when I was there. I remember reading, getting to minister to some grad students. For some reason, we had lots of grad students that were in like theoretical physics which I knew nothing about. And so I remember having these conversations, like with one guy um, who's studying theoretical physics, I, I read through the Gospel of Luke with him for a, a full semester, and it was a marvelous time. He didn't become a Christian. And, and with another guy, I, was, uh, I remember having all these conversations about faith and science, because he thought, like, you couldn't really believe in, in the, the findings of science if you actually held to some sort of faith conviction about the, the origins of the world. And I was saying, no, 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 those things aren't mutually opposed to one another. And, and he didn't become a Christian through my conversations. But I remember both these people, two or three years later, they had moved to, they'd moved to, to Europe to do PhDs, each of them. I remember getting emails from each of them at a later period of time, both telling me that they had become Christians. <laughs> and the first guy said, I became a Christian, you know, at this other church with this other pastor, this other community. It wasn't you, but I just want to thank you for first telling me who Jesus is. And, and then this other guy who, who was studying medical physics at Oxford, he said, you know, those conversations we had about faith and science just stuck with me and I couldn't get away from them. 
And so it's one of the things that, I, that I'm reminded of in this is that we just never know the story of God in a person's life. And when we encounter them by the, the movement of the Holy Spirit, we never know what part of that story we are playing. And so Philip comes into a story of what God has already been doing in Philip, I mean, in, in the Ethiopian eunuch's life, and, and he just plays this small role, but it ends up being an important role as God brings the eunuch to this saving and, and lively and joyful faith in Jesus Christ. And so we need to seize the opportunities that God gives us, but we also need to rest in our limitations. And, and I think we kind of get this posture here in verse 39. It says that when they came up out of the water after Philip baptized the eunuch. It says that the Spirit of the Lord led or carried Philip away at that time. And the eunuch didn't, didn't see him anymore. And yet the eunuch went away rejoicing. And I think one of the things that we may hear or discern here is that while um, Philip seizes this opportunity with the eunuch, he also trusts God with the eunuch. When God calls him to move on and preach elsewhere, he doesn't feel that he needs to control the faith of the eunuch. <laughs> um, he doesn't feel that the, that the eunuch's going to be completely lost without him. He just trusts that that eunuch belongs to Jesus, that that eunuch is now baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that that eunuch is going to continue, that is that God is going to continue the good work that he has begun in that eunuch as he travels south to his home in North Africa. So I think one of the things we learn here is, is basically what Paul talked about in Philippians as he was writing from prison in chains, writing to the church that he so desperately longed to see, that he served and cherished and taught the gospel. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that we discover here is this humble confidence that I think the gospel engenders in Christians, that when persecution and scattering and marginalization comes their way, they're not worried. That They believe that God is still working out his purposes and is going to use them to bring good news to people. And when people, when they cross people in their paths and they get to be a part of their story, they seize the opportunity to tell them the good news about Jesus. And then when God leads them somewhere else and they have to say goodbye, they trust that God is going to continue to be at work in that person's life, bringing about his good purposes. So my brothers and sisters, I hope you hear these things as an encouragement in our day and age. People are seeking for truth. They want to know that there is meaning in the midst of mayhem, that there is reality to hold on to and to anchor their lives. And the Holy Spirit is leading us as the people of God to be sensitive to the places and the times where we will get to tell them Jesus is risen. And that's the most real thing in the world. So I proclaim these things to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.